Hello. Welcome to the first episode of our new podcast series, Gaining Ground, hosted by a curator in residence, Annie Yale Kwan. In this first episode, Annie chats with artists Yali Allison and Bodhi Wajaja, whose work is currently on display at FACT in an exhibition called Future Ages Will Wonder. Both Gaining Ground and Future Ages Will Wonder are supported by Arts Formation. To find out more information about this podcast series, the exhibition, or us, visit our website, fact.co.uk. Welcome to the first of a series of podcasts in association with Future Ages Will Wonder, the group exhibition currently showing at FACT till the 20th of February next year. The project explores the advancements of science and technology in relation to our conceptions of ourselves and our histories. My name is Annie Yalquan. I'm currently a curator in residence at FACT and also the curator of the project. I'm very pleased today to welcome two of our artists whose projects are displayed as part of the exhibition. We have with us today Yali Allison, currently based in London, and Budi Wijaja in Singapore. So really nice to see you both here today. <laughs> and I just really want to reiterate again, thank you so much for contributing such rich and creative projects to the exhibition. Perhaps for um, our listeners who have not yet visited the show, could you please um, give us a short introduction to the works that you're showing? Um, I can go first. Uh, so I have two sets of work showing at FACT and um, two of them are, are an investigation of uh, using VR um, to create lost spaces through memories. Um, and they're both uh, keywords with uh, diaspora and migrants with um, uh, East, East Asian uh, uh, queer with queer gazes. Um, and the first work is titled In Virtual Return, uh, You Can't Dehaunt. And in short, we let's call it Dehaunt. And investigating four uh, Hong Kong queer migrant, uh, both at some point lived in the British colonial era at that time in Hong Kong. Um, and then they all moved on to other countries and, and uh, using VR as a research process to go back to these um, lost homes in, in Hong Kong before they have uh, moved. And uh, the, three, the, the other work, it's a two channel um, uh, video also using VR as research of um, a larger scale this time instead of home, uh, exploring uh, a Chinatown, let's, let's call it Chinatown at that time at 1900s and it got bombed in uh, post-war. Um, and this street called Pitt Street, it's, it's the street that I'm focusing on to kind of rebuilt and, and search for the community that is um, no longer there. And, and then using VR and uh, 3D modeling graphics, I can invite these um, community descendants go back and then start sharing their stories again and also imagining an alternative future. And along with this two channel work, I also have some physical works which I could elaborate further more later. Thank you so much, Yali. And you, Budi, could you tell us a bit more about your uh, multiple um, 
works that are in the show. Uh, thanks, Annie. Um, the works that I'm showing at FACT is a trilogy that looks at the notion of ancestral memory through the language or the genetic language to be specific of the DNA. The title of the trilogy is A Tree Plus and the titles of the three works in the trilogy revolves around this motif of a tree. And that is because this trilogy is really inspired um, by my experience of reading my paternal grandfather's journal, uh, a document that he wrote in the last few years of his life when he was living with my family in Indonesia. My grandfather was named after the Chinese parasol tree or wutong in Chinese. And it also happened that I am named after a tree as well. Uh, the root word of my first name being the Bodhi tree. And looking at the parallels uh, of migration between my grandfather and myself, um, my grandfather migrated as a youth from South China to Indonesia. And I migrated as a child from Indonesia to Singapore. I couldn't help but wonder if our diasporic and migration stories were somehow also written genetically and biologically. And that thought um, inspired my exploration into the genetic language of the DNA and how that might be linked with notions of memory, something that is uh, being explored right now, in fact, in the field of epigenetics. The, the three body of works uh, in the trilogy um, are expressed in across a diverse set of media um, that, that range from large flex installation um, that visually encodes the titles of the three works in the trilogy to a soil sample that were taken from a site-specific installation in Singapore with the soil uh, having been marked uh, by a mixture of ink and a hybrid DNA that was synthesized uh, together uh, with the help of a geneticist in Singapore to a video that uh, runs uh, its images and sound using a music score um, that uses the hybrid DNA and also a newly commissioned work that takes the form of a screen uh, featuring images that I took when I visited my grandfather's birthplace in China. And these images having been re-photographed using an inverted lens. And also the screen um, also holds a piece of encoded text, uh, something that I took from uh, a traditional book of genealogy that I received from 
my distant relatives whom I met for the first time in that trip to China. So in utilizing memory, it would seem as if memory forms a kind of material in your work or almost a media in your work, but in very different ways. Uh, for you, Buddy, it seems to be rooted in questions of you know, self and identity and family. Uh, whereas for you, Yali, it seems to be about a concern for this um, particular community in Liverpool that um, was erased you know, after the war. So can you speak a little bit more about that? Like how does memory, or the, the, the concept of memory, um, what does that mean to you in terms of making this work? And also how does working with memory um, unfold in a way? Because uh, to some degree, our memories are not always reliable. So it's based on recollection, oral histories, um, to some degree, you know, also maybe some fantasy as well. Yeah, Annie. Um, so I think for, uh, so there were two works in Liverpool, right? And the first work of De Haunt, I think is, I, I could highly, highly relate to Bodhi's uh, working process. Uh, so for De Haunt, which is the start of everything, um, it was um, uh, me like taking this photograph of um, ca a Canadian home that I left. Um, forcefully uh, uh, when I was a child. And, and then like at the back of this photo, I have the address. And, and then when I, on my 20th birthday, I returned to this home um, that belongs to someone else right now. And, and I was uh, standing in front of it and then realizing um, this space was once in my memory that, that forms, um, my identity essentially like I, I thought that was my identity as the Canadian before I moved to Hong Kong and and once I realized that space is not my space anymore like like the space has moved on but I haven't um that subjective memory becomes um I don't know like almost it's it's almost like a, like a lightning shock for, for me to realize um, that, yeah, like how, how could a space hold that much power to someone's um, uh, like formation? And, and then once realizing that that loss is there and I, and I start grieving about like um, that, that space of memory, then I start working in uh, virtual reality and like obsessively kind of draw this space um, uh, that I still remember and probably very wrong, like wrongly remembered. Um, but I had a sense of comfort when I could finally return to this space and have this um, bodily memory um, with, let's say I'm sitting on that virtual bed and, and the ratio of that bed is it it's it's relate relatable as uh, to my size as a child um and then as a child i can relate to the sofa that is super huge and the fridge as well is tall much taller than me as an adult now and and then all these sensory um memory also came back and and emotional memory as well and 
And I thought, okay, maybe I can extend this to a wider context. Uh, what if I draw someone's home when they wanted to return to that home as well? And turns out I'm not alone. Like this is quite, quite um, subjective thing. But then when it becomes uh, with multiple subjective voices, then, then it could become a larger collective oral history. So when I started to collect all these subjective voices, it became um, quite a, a way to find alternative truth, I guess, um, when, yeah, when multiple voices groups together, it, it then can enlarge to even to a street that, that is lost. And, and using, using this virtual return method, I, I can finally, see if these uh, truths are valid, these oral histories um, that is not documented on textbook or, or even on data, uh, let, let's say British census data uh, could be invalid as well when you know oh, there were much more people um, than, than uh, yeah, on, on recorded. Uh, and, and then you start to think, oh, why is the reason? Like, is it because um, uh, they're um, migrant working in, in the dark and underground, or is it because like they just probably don't understand how Chinese surname works and stuff? And and then I'll give a last example. Like, um, so there's this physical work, a hand handwritten letter from a father to his child. The father, the seaman father, got repatriated. Um, let's say in 1947, um, and then there is a letter that never could send out to their child um, that I imagine there are a lot of letters that is lost after the repatriation. And, and then I think about uh, what if this father is creating um, uh, a toy for, for this, his child um, about the, a shop, a community shop that they, they grew up uh, in and that that shop holds the memory of, of of the community and that's no longer there and and then how do I make this trauma less less sad <laughs> and um, just thinking if there's a way to um, like rebuild this kind of lost narrative or a memory that has never arrived and and it could, um, it could have, it could uplift this, um, yeah, up, uplift lift the mood of, of a loss, of a of loss grief or something. But instead, like using reassurance um, to revisit or, or create closure to these, um, yeah, to these trauma, and, yeah. So I guess like working memories with a lot of different ways. Um, I think for me, memory is uh, both a starting point and also a kind of uh, invisible structure um, from which I build my artworks. And I'll explain a little bit more about what I mean. Um, I think due to the circumstances of 
my childhood migration to Singapore, um, I have always felt the presence of something that I would describe as a void. I think it is not um, too dissimilar from what Yali um, had described. Um, that feeling of an absence. Um, and it is a very kind of tangible uh, sensation, at least for me. It's something that um, I kind of embodied. Um, and I, I think the, the, the objective uh, for, for me when I work with my familial uh, memories is, is never really to um, uncover um, the truth or to, 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 to kind of um, build a, a, an accurate account of the past. But I think first and foremost, it is a way to address something that is missing, a, a kind of a truncated, um, you know, um, feeling of, of how I relate to my past. And um, with um, each of the artworks that I, that I make, I, I, I tend to um, make use of that sense of absence and to imagine um, maybe artistic gestures that um, I can use to kind of both acknowledge and, and also take advantage almost um, of, the, um, of the absence. And I think for, for example, um, the uh, impulse to, to want to connect uh, into my paternal grandfather's um, memory and also the ancestral uh, memories through the book of genealogy. This gesture of trying to, um, to connect with, with the past is, is I think something related with my desire for rootedness. And um, it is a, a, a rootedness that is not so, so much um, anchored in, um, in facts, but one that is, uh, one that I try to articulate through the poetics uh, found in the artistic gestures. Um, so um, even at instances where I deal with uh, collective histories or um, even broader stories such as mythologies, this um, frame or this structure of uh, the absent familial memories uh, would always be there to guide um, how the ideas and uh, references would be would be connected. Yeah, I I hope that wasn't too uh, too abstract. Thank you. I mean, it's really interesting hearing both of you speak because um, the way you speak about memory, 
whether it's personal, familial, or uh, in relation to a community, it you you almost depict it for me as if memory is a space, um, and it's a space within oneself almost. Um, whether it's in the sort of psychosocial um, realm, you know, in terms of our subconscious or our the way we structure our thoughts, but also in the way you described it, Woody, that it actually becomes embodied. Um, you know, as a sort of physiological response to that condition, uh, we also carry that with us, right? So I, I find this description really poignant, but also very productive uh, in, in terms of how I can think about your work. Um, because certainly the idea of space um, comes through the way you have created your works. I mean, Buddy, your beautiful flag installation um, with its cardinal points beneath it, you know, is in fact making us so aware of where we are at that moment when we encounter it, because we are always trying to navigate um, wherever we are, you know, and I love how um, by placing that in the atrium of fact, the fact lobby, when we come in, uh, a, the very first moment is we are asking ourselves, how did we get here? Uh, where did we intend to go when we get here? You know, and I do really like that, you know, you sent over um, for us as well, um, this bit of earth that's actually from Singapore where you embedded your DNA that was synthesized. And you bring with that sort of this hope of implanting, you know, uh, a, a sort of story or, or a narrative um, for our audiences in Liverpool. And similarly, I think Yali, like the way you speak about space uh, really does make me think of the joy and tenderness in the way you created spaces in your VR work. Because sometimes we think of VR as being uh, in terms of like technology, it's so high tech, but the way you've used the technology is to create these really intimate spaces where, where we can feel like, whether it's in Dihond where we are like traveling through someone's um, sort of fumbling into this, the spaces that they could remember, you know, or the little diorama that you described earlier, uh, which is very adorable, <laughs> to be honest, you know, uh, and, and, and you brought back that joy uh, in what could have been, I suppose, a topic that's quite traumatic in, in a way. Um, so I guess from sort of detailing how you're, you're, you're speaking about memory, uh, I wonder if you could share for uh, your listeners, like, why is it important to you um, to reconstruct uh, a sense of history, or why is history important, uh, if it is? I tend to think about um, place imaginaries a lot in my practice. And um, I, I sometimes would conceptualize um, uh, what I do um, based on uh, the kind of tension between two things, one which is identity and the other being belonging. And identity for me is almost always about stories, the narratives that I construct um, around my sense of being. And belonging is usually, uh, usually very uh, place-based, right? And I tend to explore stories at, um, different scales, from the scale of a personal memory, a familial memory, to 
one that is broader, like a history, a collective history or national history, regional history, to even bigger, um, such as uh, mythologies, stories that that cover the, the span of entire civilizations. And I think on at the other hand, on the other hand, uh, with with places, I I tend to also apply this same logic of um, looking at um, the immediate site um, in where my body is located, and then to try to expand it towards the kind of a geographical uh, borders, and finally um, into a kind of a almost cosmological uh, dimension. Um, and it's a, uh, I can't really explain very well the, uh, the emotional uh, reason for, for, for doing this, but I, what, what I desire is, is simply to, to, to kind of uh, have a sense of uh, these elements somehow being integrated. Um, and, and I think um, that might be kind of a, a response to, um, to that disconnection between belonging and identity that uh, I had experienced uh, due to my childhood migration. Um, but I, I think at, at the same time, um, I, I do find it um, to be a, a very productive tension in, in my art practice. Yeah, I, I, I think Bodhi, you put it really well. It, it reminded me that like, as a kid, I always failed history exams. I, I, I didn't know what it, why is it relevant to me? Like what, why, why is Napoleon like <laughs> relevant to me as, um, as, a, as a child? And, and I noticed that the way that people are, or are my teachers at least, how they teach history is to memorize all the facts. And, and these facts doesn't even connect to emotions or stories. Um, it, it's just, I realized I cannot access these history without knowing emotion. And for me, it's a really important part in my work is to find the personal viewpoints of these specific moments that why is it documented? Why is it important in our humanity growth? And what is it, what, what is history telling us um, that is that that is reduced now into just objective facts? Um, and I'm interested in, you know, like kind of play with that, uh, imagine that the gap that is unspoken. Um, uh, let's say the uh, uh, using VR to to kind of um, explore the you know the sense of uh, belonging, the sense of a driftness that that land is lost and 
and what about the people who lost their land? Their thoughts are not documented. Like it's it's usually just okay. Eighteen seventy five, this place is lost to blah blah, and 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 I'm really interested to you know imagine what would they have felt relating to these to these griefs or, or trauma that that is not on the textbook, and so it it is it could become highly relatable to anyone who had similar experience. Um, let's say Pitt Street was bombed and the community are forced to move is not it, the feeling of it, not the facts of it, but the feeling of it probably is not so different from gentrification that, that people are forced to move by um, company giants or investors that, that you have no choice but you are oppressed and yeah being sucked out from this this area and and then you you have no idea how to connect with, with your friends anymore and and so I guess it's not yeah I'm finding a way to not to reduce it but to multiply and and make it more complex um, into a human human level I think and what makes it human is yeah, essentially we have emotions. And yeah, that ties back to the question, I guess. I suppose in a way, I think what you're both pointing out is that um, there's one way that we're taught that history is a form of knowledge um, that we encounter uh, or we should encounter objectively. Um, but actually sometimes when, now that I, you know, looking back at the way history is taught, I actually wonder how objective facts are on their own, right? Because you can um, manipulate facts the way you want to narrate a story. Um, and I find that really interesting, um, I suppose, how a story is told from which protagonist's point of view, right? I'm currently working on a project that is uh, relates, I guess, World War II, you know? And so it really makes it really interesting because there are are a lot of films and TV shows that um, portray that era um, and the conflict from, say, you know, the British perspective. I remember watching this TV show um, that humanized the entire sort of squadron uh, and told all their individual backstories and um, then showed their struggle. I think um, the Nazi soldiers, and you really felt like, wow, this is told in such a way where. The British soldiers were heroic, and therefore, um, you know, Nazism, whether in terms of Germany or also Japan, uh, you know, those were definitely the sort of evil axis of power, you know. Um, but then it makes me, uh, this recalls to me this beautiful novel I once read by Ruth Azeki, um, where that there's time travel in the novel, but you realize that then one of the, the characters in the novel is actually a young Japanese soldier that got conscripted into the army and then became a kamikaze pilot. And actually he was absolutely terrified by the whole prospect of, um, you, know, you know, having to fly the plane to his death. And actually it was a very moving story because he's writing these letters and then that these get, uh, his voice becomes part of, uh, essential part of the story of the book. How these stories then are narrated say a lot about how we understand that historical moment. And so I think both of you are the point that you're making about how um, our emotions uh, 
and the way we experience these stories really come into understanding them, right? Uh, and I wonder whether you can also talk about how in a way that you um, explore that or explore the challenge of that in your work, um, because your the way I suppose your artistic processes unfolded are quite different. And, you know, like Buddy, you have a lot of systems in your project, whether it's coding systems or language systems and algorithms, you know, in some way, like how do you thread that through? Um, because you speak in such a way that's so personal uh, with this work, um, but yet at the same time, you know, there is such a use, a very rich use of language and stories and, um, linguistic systems and coding in your practice, how do you marry the two together? And I, for you, Yali, also, I think it's the same question in a way, but reframed it as because your work is quite labor intensive in terms of the kind of post-production and VR and animation, like how does that impact um, the part of it where it is extremely personal? Um, I, I think like, Every time I use technology, there's always something, some error that comes up and where's the goddamn button? <laughs> and then you, you can never find that button. And, and then after 30 minutes of researching on YouTube, you realize, oh my God, I'm not actually creating. I'm actually solving problems of the technology. But, um, and then again, reminds me as a kid when growing up in the nineties, I, I, I realized the technology, it's, it's really fun. Like we have an open source platform for everybody and, and, and people are writing their own HTML. And, and I was making um, like, a, like a, I don't know, like some interactive games through websites and stuff. And it was labor intensive, but then it was really pure and it was just very um, direct. So it was just finding the possibilities of, well, what, what can this, these open platform, open source platform could do? And, and then I, and then now, of course, like after many years, I realized like, um, yeah, the, the notion of, or, or the, how we use the tool has changed and, and the technological instruments are basically just like um, any other, policy instruments, whoever that holds the technology holds the, holds the instrument of power. And so in the Liverpool Pitt Street work, I, I was thinking, okay, who holds these power? And who are the people, like through my research, I'm, I'm just looking at the stories on like heavily falls onto one side, which is uh, the uh, the British census and, and the British British side of the story, the privileged people, the policymakers, and why did they have to have to invent these alien exclusion acts at that time? And there are they privileged elite people, and and then tying back to now, are they um, are the other people higher up? Um, using technology to, to create AI algorithms or, or feeding data in the machine learning or um, what are these people and, and how are the data gathered, filtered, selected, and, and then and as a result, are they biased and how are we aware of that? And, and so I guess like 
looking back to these history is not really different from where we are right now. And um, and for me, I, I spent 30 minutes to solve a problem of finding a button, but then, but then for them, they can, yeah, press one button and probably erase our whole being in, in the in the society system. So so I'm like, yeah, so I'm I'm thinking of tech education, like if if we can provide more education, helping people and then shape their own histories with technology, and then we can determine the best outcomes for their society in the humane human-centric design. Um, let's say language for human instead of language of the machine, then then probably we can think about the open source platform once again and, and decentralizing it again. And, and yeah, just thinking about relationship with network technology, particularly, yeah, like how the machine thinks or actually how the human thinks. And, and it's all about human narrative. And I always remember in my work to <laughs> remind myself with a sticky note, um, uh, always have human touch in your work, even though there's, yeah, it, even it's heavily um, uh, working with technology. So yeah, that, that would be my approach. I think the way I think about uh, process is uh, very influenced by my um, education in architecture and um, I don't see any necessarily um, kind of a contradiction between method and an outcome that is that that possess that human quality that Yali uh, had, uh, had talked, talked about. Um, in fact I think um, the, the, the kind of a process that I, uh, I tend to, um, to use um, is one that where um, I try to, to bring in some sort of order into uh, an extremely chaotic situation. <laughs> and uh, with, with the hope that some of this chaos uh, survive, um, this artistic process and still be uh, able to be experienced or sensed in the in the final uh, artwork, and um, I think my my practice um, in drawing also contribute quite a fair bit into the way I think about methods, because when you draw, um, or rather when when you draw with the purpose of describing a building. Uh, every line is there for a purpose. It is not there to, uh, to as, as a means of decoration or, uh, although there's nothing wrong with doing that, but there is a kind of a uh, systematic um, notion of, of having each line describe uh, a situation and uh, a step in that in that in that overall uh, process. Um, 
technology for me is uh, is something that is very very human in in nature i mean from you know from the beginning of language itself um, or even from prehistory uh, in the drawings found in the in the caves of Lascaux, for for example, you already have this sense of our relationship with with uh, technique or technology. So it's more of a, an evolution of our relationship with technology and the kind of capabilities and augmentations that our modern digital technology uh, offers us and uh, what it enables us to do. Um, um, I think um, there's always the desire for me to expose uh, this, this process or this, these methods that I, that I use in, in, in my art. I, I, I always tend to think that there's quite a fair bit of the art in that process. For example, in one of the pieces that I'm showing, in fact, I had um, used the syntax of the genetic language of the DNA to bridge the um, hexagrams found in the eating with the Javanese um, ancient language uh, called the Hanacharaka. Um, and that to me is, uh, is one way that um, I can think about a kind of a method that may seem to be very technical at first instance, but one that uh, serves a purpose uh, to address uh, a very real and a very deep kind of a, a emotion in in the in the project. Thank you so much. I think you both made such an important point that uh, in a way we're not necessarily or we shouldn't necessarily be led by technology. But technology has always been a tool, you know, that's been with us through the ages, whether it was from the first wheel or arrowhead um, to the sophisticated machines that we have now, it's how do we deploy these technologies. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your thoughts so generously today. Um, so listeners, if you've not been up to Liverpool, um, please do come visit our show at FACT. It's called Future Ages Will Wonder, and it will be on till the 20th of February. So there's still plenty of time. And do also catch the next podcast. We'll also be spending some time with Breakwater, who are Yong Suk Choi and Tay Ayohe, as well as Larry Chapong and David Blandy. So thank you very much.